it, it's like getting a concert ticket, but you cannot book it. You cannot purchase it online. What happens is they have, uh, you have no idea when, when it is going to be on sale. So once it's available, there suddenly be a price and either you take it or the container will be gone. Um, it's creating a lot of pressure for us. Hello and welcome to Stepanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. What you heard there was a Hong Kong-based exporter discovering his corner of the global economy overbooked. From Singapore to Rotterdam, ships are queuing to get into port and exporters are struggling to book space for their freight. Satellite photos show there are currently around three dozen container ships anchored outside the twin ports near LA, the busiest gateway for US goods trade, still waiting for berths. And major car manufacturers like Volkswagen and Honda are cutting production in the US and Europe because of a struggle to get parts. We thought it was a short-term mismatch between demand and supply caused by the pandemic, but there are fears that these supply chain issues could now stop the global recovery in its tracks. Our senior Asia economy correspondent Ender Curran gives us his take down at the docks in Hong Kong in a few minutes. But first, some breaking news from the US. We have a new president sitting in the Oval Office, Joe Biden. Almost as important for at least some listeners to this podcast, we have a new Treasury Secretary too, sitting across the road at 1500 Pennsylvania Avenue, Janet Yellen. Now, she's not exactly a new face. She was head of the US Central Bank until Trump decided to replace her with Jay Powell. Uh, She was on Stephanomics uh, talking to me uh, at the New Economy Forum a few months ago. And we got a sneak preview of what her reign at the Treasury Department might be like earlier this week in her confirmation hearing before the Senate Finance Committee. And Bloomberg reporter Chris Condon listened to every word of it. Chris, uh, thanks for joining. You you know Janet Yellen of old from covering the Federal Reserve. You're now moving from being a Fed reporter uh, to being uh, Treasury. We're going to send you there to cover Janet Yellen. Um, tell us about the hearings. I mean, I guess you didn't get as much from them uh, as you would a normal hearing because a lot of it was remote. Hi there, Stephanie. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like much of the these things these days, it was uh, largely a virtual hearing. Some of the lawmakers were there in the room, in the hearing room. Uh, some of the lawmakers were doing it remotely from their offices, and Janet Yellen did it remotely from her home. So that's the first reason why it wasn't really your normal confirmation hearing. The second, interestingly, I think is that there's no question that Janet Yellen is going to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. She has very broad support on both sides of the political aisle. In fact, many of the Republicans who had a lot of uh, critical things to say about the Biden administration welcomed her and said they looked forward to working with her when she was at the Treasury. So there's no question. Uh, So without that sort of vetting process to to go on in the hearing, it turned largely into a discussion and debate over the merits of Biden's stimulus package. Uh, And and Yellen began doing her first job, which is to sell that to lawmakers, uh, both to the Republicans and to some of the uh, somewhat more conservative 
Democrats in the Senate whose support is going to be needed. So, uh, and she seemed to get off on a pretty good start there. Uh, she's she's no stranger to these types of things. Uh, she's very well prepared and very well spoken, and uh, uh, I think she had a pretty good first day. Yeah, so we're going to hear actually uh, a couple of things that she said on the on those topics. I mean, she has to. Obviously, there's a there's a balance that someone who has to make sure that the U.S. carries on paying back all this debt has to strike between you know sounding suitably concerned about this mountain of federal debt that's been run up just in the last uh, twelve months, but also talking about the need for stimulus. And actually, um, when she did talk for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum a few months ago, um, when she was just being talked about as a Treasury Secretary, she talked about the Fed uh, pleading for fiscal relief, wanting to get more stimulus for the economy. So, so let's hear what she said first about worrying about the debt, but also on the need for stimulus. It's essential that we um, put the um, federal budget uh, on a path that's sustainable. But the most important thing, in my view, that we can do today to put us on a path of fiscal sustainability is to defeat the pandemic, to provide relief to American people, and then to make long-term investments that will help the economy grow and benefit future generations. Um, To avoid doing what we need to do now to address the pandemic and the economic damage that it's causing um, would likely leave us in a worse place uh, fiscally and with respect to our our debt situation uh, than taking the steps that are necessary and doing that through deficit finance. So so we heard there, you know, quite a, a full-throated call for more stimulus, even as she was concerned about uh, the long-term path of the debt. But uh, I gather the Republicans did score some points uh, in pointing up some of the weaknesses in, in Joe Biden's plan. I mean, how did she do there? Uh, a bit mixed, I would say. First of all, she tries to present herself, as you heard, as someone who will still be a voice of reason inside the Biden administration. She is very conscious of the long-term need to, as she said, keep the uh, the budget on a sustainable path. But now is not the time to worry about that too much. In fact, if you don't do the things you need, if you don't spend aggressively now to contain the virus, to help Americans who are suffering because of it, you're going to be in a worse place in the longer run. And, and there she's got a lot of, of backing. Um, a lot of economists would agree with her um, that that is a very good case to make. Now, where I think the Biden plan has greater weakness, and Yellen, in her heart of hearts, really must recognize this, is when we talk about these $1,400 additional checks that will go out to so many American households. Um, An economist just yesterday told me that he estimated about 85% of those households don't have any employment issues. So you're going to be sending a lot of money to a lot of Americans who really aren't being directly damaged by by the pandemic. Is that really the wisest thing to do? So this idea of how well targeted 
are some of these measures was the strongest point that some Republicans made. And they made it very strongly and, and repeatedly. She did not have a great answer for that. Of course, she's not a, a you know a, a nonpartisan economist anymore. She can't say, well, you have a point here, you have a point there. No, no. She has to be a good soldier and stick with what the boss is proposing. So she kind of had to dodge that a bit. Um, uh, it didn't come across very badly for her, but clearly she did not have a, a fully prepared comeback for that question of how well targeted the aid is in some cases. So one area where the economics and the politics maybe go together, at least in terms of the merits, uh, is the increase in the minimum wage, which arguably also would be a bit better targeted to the people who have suffered most in this pandemic. Um, the, the Democrats, many of the Democrats and Joe Biden uh, focused on increasing the minimum wage significantly up to $15 an hour. Um, let's hear what she said about that. Right now, we have millions of American workers who are putting their lives on the line uh, to keep their communities functioning and sometimes even working multiple jobs uh, aren't earning enough to put food on the table. And raising the minimum wage would really help many of those workers. That's the reason for doing it. Now, in terms of potential job loss, there's now a large economics literature on this. And the, the findings are that the job loss is, is, is very minimal, if, if anything. So what do you think, Chris? Is, it, is there a chance we're going to double the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour under the Biden administration? I, I think there certainly is a chance. A um, couple of things to note about this. Uh, about uh, almost 30 states uh, plus the District of Columbia already have minimum wage levels that are well above the federal minimum. Um, and there are big employers like Amazon and Walmart that set minimum pay above the federal minimum. So it's not like the entire country is going to see this sweeping doubling of the minimum level of pay available. It's not quite that dramatic. Um, and there is quite a bit of, of evidence, as Yellen pointed out, supporting the idea that there won't be a lot of job destruction because of it. Now, can it pass the Senate? Uh, one interesting thing to note is how many votes do you need to get it through? If they can go through the budget reconciliation process, you just need 50 plus one. But it has to pass the test of affecting spending or revenue raising. And now you can make the argument that by raising the minimum wage, you're going to raise tax revenue because people at that end are going to be paid more and thus be their employment taxes are going to be more. Um, but the last time a, a piece of legislation tried to do this in 2019, the Congressional Budget Office scored it as neutral on the budget and did not allow it to go through the budget reconciliation process. So they have a test there. If they need to get 60 votes to, to if outside the reconciliation process to stop, uh, you know, to, to, to bring a debate to an end, that will be a much more serious test. And they may seriously struggle to get 10 Republican senators on board. 
we're going to hear about this again and again. It sounds like an arcane point, this point about the reconciliation process. But it is, it's, if you've got a 50-50 Senate, it is absolutely fundamental that you can, that really the, the administration is only going to be confident of being able to get through things that can go in that process. And as you say, there are, there are rules that uh, limit what kind of thing uh, can be in there. Well, minimum wages uh, before or against is definitely a Main Street issue. I guess what you might call more of an interest to Wall Street is what she said about the dollar. And I think here we we did have a big contrast with with Donald Trump. Let's let's hear what she said and then unpack uh, the differences between her and her predecessor. I believe in market determined exchange rates. The value of the U.S. dollar and other currencies should be determined by markets. Markets adjust to reflect variations in economic performance and generally facilitate adjustments in the global economy. The United States does not seek a weaker currency to gain competitive advantage, and we should oppose attempts by other countries to do so. So, Chris, what was the big difference in what she said about the dollar? Well, the the Trump administration really kind of flipped all around on this issue, didn't they? Uh, Trump loved the idea of a strong dollar. It sounded good to him. But then, of course, he, he realized that uh, a weaker dollar would help American exporters. And I think they tried to jawbone the dollar in some instances. Um, you're not going to get that from Janet Yellen. She knows that the market in the long term sets exchange rates anyways. And, and I think she fell into the classic Treasury Secretary speak on this. Uh, American officials, when they, you know, when they know what they're talking about, always accept a stronger dollar as a consequence of good, positive things that are happening. It means that the economy is probably growing faster than the economies of other major trading part, uh, partners. And it's attracting investment, it's attracting purchases of your goods. But you don't seek it um, as a policy that can backfire on you, of course. And nor she knows as well that seeking a weaker dollar to help exporters can really backfire if they're looking to keep an eye on other countries and prevent them from from weakening their own currencies. And, and not to mention that it can backfire in the sense that other countries may accuse the Federal Reserve of seeking to weaken the U.S. dollar through massive quantitative easing. So best in all worlds, is to step back and say, look, the market determines these things. We'll be quite happy if the economy does well, the currency will probably strengthen as a natural result, but we'll let the market do its thing. Uh, it's back to the old, it's back to my old days at the US Treasury under uh, Robert Rubin. I don't know how many times I heard him say a strong dollar is in the national interest. And then the key thing was that that was all he would say. But I suspect... Um, Yellen will be moving in that direction as well. Well, finally, I guess we should talk about the one area where perhaps there was least change from uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and the Trump administration, and that was on China. Quite tough talk um, from Janet Yellen on that subject. Let's hear what she said. We need to take on uh, China's abusive, unfair and illegal practices China is undercutting American companies, 
by dumping products, erecting trade barriers, and giving illegal subsidies to corporations. It's been stealing intellectual property and engaging in practices that give it an unfair technological advantage, including forced technology transfers. And these practices, including China's low labor and environmental standards, are uh, practices that we're prepared to use the full array of tools to address. Very of course, it is important over time to work with our allies. So, Chris, uh, obviously, uh, there's going to be other members of the administration whose main job it is to think about U.S.-China relations, not least the Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken. But, but what did you take from that quite harsh language from Janet Yellen? I think that's an area where she is taking direction directly from the president-elect and his close advisors. That's what they want. This is the, the, the policy they want to implement. It's uh, politically driven. I think it's practically speaking. There are also some obviously very serious issues to address with China. Uh, but the politics wrapped up into it are, are really um, pressing. So there's no room for Janet Yellen to do anything, but uh, uh, even if she wanted to, to toe the line and give a very strong message about all of the different fronts in which the Biden administration wants to confront China. Uh, I think underneath, of course, the, the manner in which they do it and the tone of the language they use will be quite different from the Trump administration. Um, but as a a signpost that they want to put out on day one. They are just, as you say, putting up very strong language to signal uh, how they want to stand on this. And if anything, on the national security issues, actually a bit tougher uh, than Donald Trump was. Well, um, we'll have uh, we'll have plenty more to say about Janet Yellen and others in the new administration over the next uh, few weeks and months. But in the meantime, Chris Condon, thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Thanks very much. Now, it hasn't been a good start to the year for people in the business of transporting goods from country A to country B. In our first episode of 2021, we heard about the trouble at the UK port of Dover even before Britain fully departed the European Union. Brexit-related red tape has caused a lot more trouble since January 1st, with Scottish fishermen being forced to throw away millions of pounds worth of fish and new barriers to trade causing shortages in supermarkets in Northern Ireland. But it isn't just Brexit. The global shipping industry is struggling to deliver what the world wants to buy, and exporters and importers everywhere are feeling the pain. Our Hong Kong-based senior Asia economy correspondent, Ender Curran, went down to the docks to see for himself. That's the sound of ships being loaded and unloaded here at Hong Kong port, as huge cranes stack 20-foot containers like Lego bricks onto vessels that will deliver goods around the world. While it appears to be business as usual here, a shortage of shipping containers around the world is choking an exports boom that has helped to drag the global economy from its pandemic-induced slump. Manufacturers complain they are unable to ship goods or take new orders. That's because of surging prices for containers as global restrictions to stem the coronavirus tie knots in supply chains. The crunch around the world has been building for months. 
It's now being compounded by a race by Chinese factories to get goods shipped ahead of the nation's annual New Year's holidays. So when this uh, uh, issue starts to kick in, it, uh, we really start uh, to panic quite a bit. Kenway Lam runs a firm that makes packaging machinery used for everything from cookies to granola. He depends on ocean freight to deliver his bulky equipment to clients around the world. Last month, he was all set to load a shipment, bound for a customer who had agreed the deal and the shipping costs months earlier. What should have been a humdrum routine of ferrying goods from factory to port became a logistical nightmare when Lam was told there were no containers available. We are like, what? Really? What's happening? Uh, we are already freaking out. Lam, who was managing director of Hong Kong-based Kazooie Packaging Machinery, whose manufacturing is completed in Guangdong and Taiwan, has had to watch as prices for containers surge on a weekly basis. It's like getting a concert ticket, but you cannot book it. You cannot purchase it online. What happens is they have, uh, you have no idea when, when it is going to be on sale. So once it's available, there suddenly be a price and either you take it or the container will be gone. Um, it's creating a lot of pressure for us. Factory owners say containers that once would have cost $2,000 to send are now being quoted at anything up to $10,000 or more. The shortage is ricocheting through supply chains as manufacturers are left holding goods they haven't been paid for. Inventory is piling up and cash flows are taking a hit. Some factories complain they can't consider new orders. Sydney Hughes firm Prime Success Enterprises Limited makes educational and recreational products such as tents for children and teepees and baths for pets. After booking two containers to Europe for a shipment last month from Yantian, Shenzhen, he was later told he could only get one. When we go to the uh, container terminal to collect the container, they said, sorry, there's not, nothing available you know, for you. So you have to wait for the next, uh, next week shipment or uh, uh, until uh, further notice. So that's a big, big problem for us. In another instance, you had secured a container for shipping, only to be told there was no room left on the ship. When we arrived at the terminal, they said, oh, sorry, there's nothing available for you, you know. So we tried, you know, our, 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 our transfer company tried the next day, still said, sorry, no more, you know. So, so, so you have to wait for the next, next week's uh, vessel and see what you can do. Yeah. So it's been... Uh, a, a terrible situation. The pandemic put a rocket under exports from Asia's manufacturing powerhouses. China, South Korea and Taiwan all saw urgent demand for work-from-home technology and healthcare kit. The boom helped China win market share of world trade and to become the world's only major economy to grow last year, while Taiwan and South Korea's exports are also gaining. Jackie Yim runs Life in Motion, a Hong Kong-based lighting company. It makes portable ultraviolet lights that can eliminate bacteria and viruses. This year, we're still seeing uh, a quite a huge uh, demand for our products. And a lot, of, a lot of people send us a request for distribution of our products around the world. Like other manufacturers, Yim is doing what he can to keep costs down and to look for workaround solutions. So that's why we have to negotiate and see how we can 
share the increase of, of the cost right now. So there are lots of, we have to be constantly talking to uh, get, in, get in touch base with our customer in overseas as well. So, um, well, hopefully, you know, after the Chinese New Year, uh, we'll see the, we'll, the, the situation would hopefully ease down a little bit. There is a lot riding on manufacturing to continue powering the global economic recovery as services sector industries such as tourism and travel remain in the doldrums. The World Bank this month warned that the rebound from the deepest recession since World War II will be slightly slower than previously expected as virus cases surge across advanced economies. The Washington-based lender also trimmed its global trade volume growth forecast to 5% this year, following a 9.5% contraction last year. As Jackie Yim mentioned, the big hope for exporters is that the bottleneck eases once the annual Chinese New Year holiday is over, the biggest annual holiday in the world's second largest economy, and as vaccines to tame the virus roll out on a larger scale. Bloomberg Economics Chief Asia Economist Chang Xu expects conditions to improve after the first quarter. Uh, I expect the impact is relatively limited. Uh, they might not be a huge impact on, on the production side and on the goods and price side. I think the disruption will be relatively temporary and over time will ease as vaccines allow countries to open up the economies. Not that you would notice any of these issues here at the Hong Kong port, one of the world's busiest shipping hubs that can handle around 20 million containers a year on liners that are heading to over 400 destinations. For exporters, a return to normality can't come soon enough. I've been in this business for uh, 16, uh, around 16 years. This is something that I have never seen in my career uh, running export for all these years. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on all things economic. And remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, you just have to follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Christopher Condon, Ender Curran, and Yang Yang. Lucy Meakin is the executive producer of Stephanomics, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Listener.